episode three of Fantasy Football Today, DFS. Frank Sample joined by Mike McClure and Sian Ajad to talk showdown strategy and winners and losers from week one of the preseason. What is going on, Mike? How was your weekend? Because apparently you were away out partying. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, I was actually in Indianapolis for a few days, uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, went to an indie car race, a little NASCAR race, um, had a lot of fun there. Did that the week before here in Nashville, uh, Music City Grand Prix, and just kind of followed the tour up the road uh, to Indianapolis for the weekend. I have never been to a NASCAR race. Sia, have you ever been to a NASCAR race? Actually, no. I have yet to go to a NASCAR race. I think it should be a box for me to check. So, Mike, I mean, I think that sounded like an invite. So um, I accept and I'm in for the next one. Anytime. Let's Anytime. do it. Anytime. Let's make it happen. I think it was a big weekend for you, See, I know that you were all over the Broncos on Saturday. How's it going? Yeah, I, I might have texted my, my ticket to uh, a couple of people. Yeah, I, I liked the Broncos a lot in the preseason. You know, like, I'm not going to pretend that every preseason game there's an edge, but there are some times where news leaks out or just news just comes out and it's aware really for everybody to consume, which of course in the Vikings case, they weren't going to play any of their defensive starters. So I actually had a first half bet, which I, I liked a lot more than the full game bet, but I had it hit both ways. And, you know, listen, when you, when you have Drew Locke, who is, you know, trying to compete for a job here, yeah, probably all season, he's going to be doing that with Teddy Bridgewater. And you have most of your offensive starters against a team that has literally no defensive starters and is dealing with issues with COVID and some, some team chemistry issues in the locker room as well. Um, they just weren't, I think, I think they, they played the least amount of, of personnel uh, or was the second least amount of personnel in in all of the preseason one game so when you have that you know you want to fire on a first half bet more than anything and it actually came in really really easily yeah what do you think about drew lock he went five for seven 151 yards two touchdowns thank you kj hamler who had an 80 yard touchdown himself they look pretty good but again they're going up against backups and that's the thing. And that's why we have to kind of temper our expectations, not just for Locke, but also Javante Williams. I mean, if you look at some of his runs, I mean, he did some his vision was great. You know, he he found the cutback lanes on on one particular run and, and it looked pretty good. But again, he was going up against the backups right away. And and Denver had a lot of their starters out there. So I like, to, you know, Williams is a good example of, OK, yeah, he looked really good, but that doesn't mean he's taking Melvin Gordon's job. Yeah, more on that a little bit later on, too, because Melvin Gordon is dealing with a minor groin injury. And Javante Williams, again, he looked pretty good in that start there. And he actually had a touchdown that was called back a four yard touchdown in that game. And preseason DFS, by the way, is just absolutely wild. I cashed on Thursday night. I, we're texting back and forth. And I told you guys I had uh, Quez Watkins, who had like this super long 79 yard touchdown, whatever. He was uh, like 70 percent rostered. So everybody was in. On Watkins, <laughs> I was dead in the water. And then Ramondre Stevenson just breaks off a 91-yard touchdown, which helps me cash. And there was like a minute left in that game or something. So that was just absolutely wild. Let's talk about some of the winners and losers from this past weekend. Mike, we'll start with you. Yeah, some of the winners and losers. I think the winners for me, it's definitely going to be just the rookie quarterbacks, NFL fans in general, uh, put a lot of pressure on the teams there, a lot of pressure from the fans, a lot of pressure from the media. Fields obviously looked pretty good. Like you said earlier, we do have to kind of slow down a little bit on some of this just because it is not truly up to game speed, really even. Definitely not up against what they're going to see week in, week out in the regular season. Uh, but having said that, good. Definitely going to be a lot of pressure on some of these organizations that uh, that they should probably be starting some of these rookie guys week one. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that progresses over the next two weeks. 
Justin Fields went 14 for 20 in that game, 142 passing yards, one passing touchdown. He added 33 rushing yards and a rushing touchdown. Both of those touchdowns came in the third quarter when there was no NFL starters, no defensive starters going up against him on the other side of the field. He also said, quote, the NFL game was kind of slow to me. All right, well, put your money where your mouth is, Justin Fields. See, what do you think about, if you want to expand a little bit on Justin Fields and just some of the winners you saw from this weekend? I mean, things a rookie quarterback should never say. Right. I just, you know, that, that that's just the type of thing that's going, I mean, honestly, it's not really a big deal in the scheme of things, but it's just the type of thing that's really going to come back to haunt you, especially as a rookie quarterback. I mean, a, a few names that come to mind. So, you know, Terrace Marshall looked really good. The, the only thing, again, we, we Mike just said it again, we, we need to temper our expectations. As good as he looked, how many targets he's going is he going to get relative to the veterans, you know, Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore, among others. So, but he did look good, and it looks like a draft pick that probably is going to pay off, like most people thought. You know, I think Raheem Mostert was kind of a winner. I thought Trey Sermon looked like I thought Trey Sermon would look, which is kind of like a backup running back. And you might remember from last week, I mentioned Mostert as a a week one DFS play. And I think he's 5,800. I stand by that. I think Mostert is going to run all over Detroit. I think it's going to be his backfield for the first month, six weeks, maybe the entire season, or at least until Jeff Wilson comes back. That doesn't mean Trey Sermon's not going to get touches. I just don't think he's going to be the running back that Raheem Mostert's going to be. You mentioned Ramondre Stevenson. He's not going to take Damian Harris's job, but he is a good running back. I think he was a good draft pick by New England. So I think Rolando Stevenson and Damian Harris probably have a foothold there, but certainly Damian is the guy. You know, the lose, a couple losers too, and I'll mention some more winners, but the Ravens receiver core is just all banged up. You know, the, the rookie is banged up. Watkins went out of practice today. Marquise Brown is banged up. So if you're going to like pick out a winner, maybe a complete DFS dart throw, maybe Duvernay because he's just one of the guys that's healthy. He's in his second year. Um, maybe a couple other winners. Marquez Callaway. I mean, you're going to have to decide between Marcus Callaway and Traquan Smith and and maybe Adam Troutman. Now, Troutman didn't do much. He wasn't on the field much. But Callaway looked pretty good. And and I think whether it's Winston or Taysom Hill in there, I think Callaway is going to probably be your best bet, whether it's season long or DFS. Uh, Rondell Moore, I, I think he's a nice little sleeper. And then I'll give you two losers. And I'll just make this kind of uh, general. Both backfields for the Buccaneers and the Jets. And and it's not because I don't like any of the running backs in particular. I just think it's going to be so muddled. You're just not going to be able, like Ty Johnson, for example, got a lot of carries, as did Michael Carter. Tevin Coleman is also on that team. Like Again, especially in DFS, week one, week two. I mean, unless there's some news, it looks like that's going to be kind of a rotation. And the same is true for the Bucs because Gio Bernard is there. So you have Leonard Fournette. And you obviously have Rojo and Gio Bernard. So Gio is going to carve out some sort of role. That's why they went out and got him. He's going to catch some passes. So there are certain kind of receiver cores and backfields I think I'm going to be avoiding both in year long and in DFS. And those two come to mind. Yeah, I think this was a good reminder, too, because we spoke about Michael Carter a little bit last week and his hype has been growing throughout training camp. But let's remember that their offensive coordinator, Michael Floor, comes from Kyle Shanahan, San Francisco, where they almost always used a running back by committee as long as he was there in San Francisco. So it would be a rotation of running backs, and it's probably something that we can expect at least early on in the season for the Jets before someone else pulls away. I did just want to touch on Terrace Marshall, what you mentioned, and I do agree with you that there are a lot of mouths to feed there between him and Robbie and uh, and with, obviously, Christian McCaffrey, who's just going to demand a ton of targets as well. Terrace Marshall had five targets in this game. According to Pro Football Focus, four of those targets came in the slot. 
And I can confirm to you, having watched Sam Darnold a ton as a Jet fan, unfortunately, that he mm-hmm. loves throwing to slot receivers. So you remember some of those big Jamison Crowder double-digit target games. Mm-hmm. If Terrace Marshall has that job, which is what they've talked about, then he might have some legitimate value right away. So I did want to point that out for Terrace Marshall. Uh, Mike, let's just go back to Justin Fields real quick. And I want to kind of rope in Trey Lance to this conversation as well, because Trey Lance goes 5 for 14. He had some wide receivers drop passes in this one. 128 yards, a touchdown, an 80-yard touchdown, which actually was a really nice pass. It was His receiver was on the run there. Who do you think starts first between Justin Fields and Trey Lance, if you have a lean with either one of those guys? Uh, this will be a three-way market, just like a soccer bet. I'm going to take the draw. They're both going to start week one. Oh, wow. Really? Nice. <laughs> we'll see. No. Um, I mean, I think it's possible that they do, honestly. I think that they're going to have a lot of pressure on them, but I'll, I'll take Justin Fields. I think Fields is going to get it done. I, you, I think there's going to be too much pressure there. I, I think he's going to end up getting the job. What do you think, Sia? It's tough because there's a couple things working against themselves. So first of all, obviously, Trey Lance went further up in the draft, you know, and so and not that much further up than Justin Fields. But you would think a guy that's picked, what was it, second overall is going to probably be in a situation to start quicker. However, I think Jimmy Garoppolo is better than Andy Dalton. So you have that working against uh, Trey Lance starting first. I mean, you know, honestly, we could dedicate an entire show to this because, and don't worry, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just, you know, stammer on for a while, but I don't think either of them are going to start week one. Although to Mike's point, not only is it possible, but, but maybe that's what should happen. I just, I just don't think either coach is going to do that. But if I had to put a play on this, I'd probably say it's going to be Justin Fields because I think the the pressure to replace Andy Dalton will be greater than the pressure to replace Jimmy Garoppolo. And I do want to point out, Jimmy Garoppolo was in a Super Bowl two years ago and was six minutes and some seconds away from actually winning that Super Bowl. So as incompetent as the narrative is with respect to Jimmy Garoppolo, he's not the guy you think he is. He's an average quarterback, and he's an average quarterback that got the Niners to a Super Bowl. So Andy Dalton, I don't think I can make a case like that for him. Bears coach Matt Nagy suggested on Monday that Justin Fields will start to get more reps with wide receiver Allen Robinson and other starters on the first team. So something to pay attention to there. The Bears are scheduled to face the Los Angeles Rams in week one. I just don't know if that's the best spot to throw Justin Fields out uh, for his first career NFL start. A few other winners for me just wanted to quickly mention. Corey Davis, obviously I was watching a Jet game very intently. Zach Wilson, he looked all right. They didn't really ask him to do much. But all four of Zach Wilson's passes on his first drive went to Corey Davis. I thought that was interesting. And then Marvin Jones Three catches, 52 yards on four targets from Trevor Lawrence, including a 35-yard reception on third and 10, where Lawrence really just kind of threw it up there, and Marvin Jones went out and made a play. DJ Chark has uh, a fractured finger as of now, so I'm starting to buy in on Marvin Jones, especially in some best ball, some season long, but uh, in DFS for sure, could be a major player this season, Marvin Jones. All right, let's talk about some showdown strategy. We will uh, get to a little bit more preseason week one, some other news and notes later on in the podcast. And maybe C and I should just leave for the next 20 minutes or so because, (laughs) Mike, I mean, this is your format. One of the first things that you told us when we really met each other here, and we're we're doing uh, some meetings beforehand before we even started this podcast, and you talked about how much you love showdown and how great that, it has been for you to this point. So we are going to, obviously, look, we're going to work see you in here, but we are going to lean on your analysis here. First and foremost, what is Showdown? It's a one-game DFS slate for Island Games, a.k.a. Thursday Night Football, Sunday Night Football, Monday Night Football, and get ready to sweat because every single play in a game means something 
in this format in showdown. It can, and you might not think, oh, they just threw it to a fullback. It matters somehow, some way. It matters in this format. And on DraftKings, you have just six flex spots in this format to fill, which can be any position, including defense and kicker. One of those positions will be a captain spot where you earn one and a half times the points, but that player also becomes one and a half times their salary, which kind of throws a wrench in things, and and we'll spend more time specifically on that a little bit later on. Uh, You must also have at least one player from each team, so you can't just have all six be the Cowboys in week one, no matter how much you love your Dallas Cowboys. And then for FanDuel, it doesn't have a flashy name, but this format uh, is just referred to as the single game contest on FanDuel. You have five flex spots to fill, and it can be any position, again, except for defense. I didn't see any defense there, so I assume that's not a thing uh, on their single game slate. They also have an MVP slot where you earn one and a half times the fantasy points, but different than DraftKings, the MVP does not Their salary does not become one and a half times like it does on DraftKings. That's your like basic definition for both sites. But before we go any deeper, Mike, what makes the showdown slate so unique compared to a normal slate of DFS? Well, the first thing that's going to stand out, you mentioned it's going to be the roster construction. There are no positions, uh, so you're not constrained by having to roster a running back, for example, or on a traditional FanDuel DraftKings slate, you're having to roster two running backs. You're having to roster a tight end or three wide receivers, et cetera. You can play two quarterbacks. That happens very, very, very frequently. Uh, And then another real source of edge, especially on really on both sides, but I find it really on DraftKings. You can play the kickers. Uh, that's something that FanDuel and DraftKings have removed from the full slates several years ago now at this point. Not a thought in the mind of any casual players really at all that are playing daily fantasy, but the kickers actually have incredibly high median projections on a one-game slate, uh, and, and the price points are typically low enough that their value plays, you're playing them quite often. Uh, so it's that and then just pricing, right? So you get last-minute uh, injury news on a full slate Not necessarily a huge deal, but in a one-game slate where the pricing, you only have one game to replace the players with, you're looking at backups, you're looking at, you know, the average person's trying to build a lineup using most of the salary. There are many times where I'll leave four, five, six, seven thousand dollars in salary left on the table in this format. That is definitely interesting, and I will ask you more about that in just a little bit. Uh, See, let's work you back in here. And... For the showdown slate, you can play both cash and GPP, which is interesting because, I mean, with GPP, you can make, it's a it's a mass multi-enter. It's 150 lineups. You can play like single entry cash games and stuff. But how do you think, I guess it's kind of similar to what we talked about last week, but in terms of this slate, showdown slate, how much do you think roster construction changes based on cash versus GPP specifically for showdown? Yeah, I mean, for one, I mean, in a cash game, the... It depends on the slate, of course, but you're, you're going to be more inclined. And Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a cash game, I would think you'd be more inclined, obviously, to roster both quarterbacks because it's just one of those situations where they're probably going to have the point totals that, that you're looking for. And then, I mean, you know, again, you're looking for high floors at the end of the day. So that's sort of what I'm looking at. But I think more importantly... And and I know Mike can speak to this as well, especially if you're doing like a single entry versus like 150 max, you really have to sort of commit to your game script. And again, I'd love to hear sort of how Mike does this, whether it's when he's doing 150 lineups or when he's doing just a single lineup. But, you know, the Super Bowl was our good example last week 
Frank, because that was a that was one single game. You had to play showdown there. And I think most people had sort of a, a perception of how that game was going to go. And, you know, a lot of people thought it was, you know, going to be the Mahomes, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey show. And then you bring it back with, you know, whoever, whether it's, you know, Antonio Brown, Godwin Evans, whoever it is. And um, and then you just play some low price players from there. That, I think that would have been the, the perception. But if you were committed to Tampa Bay being the victors in, in the way that they were, then all of a sudden your game script is different and therefore your player pool is different. So whether it's a Monday night football or Thursday night football or Sunday night football or the Super Bowl, I think you have to, especially if you're only doing a few lineups, you have to commit to your game script and play the players that fit that narrative. So let's, I want to piggyback off of that. And we spoke about the uh, the importance of correlating your stacks last week, especially when it comes to GPPs. If you play Aaron Rodgers, you want Devontae Adams and Randall Cobb as your as his pass catchers, and then you bring it back with somebody on the other side, a wide receiver, a tight end, whatever it might be, if you think that game is going to be a shootout. Week one, we have the Bucks and the Cowboys. The Bucks are six and a half point favorites with a total of 51 and a half. Mike, do you just kind of commit to one game flow that you think the game is going to be and you kind of make different lineups based on that? Or do you, when you're making 150 lineups, do you make different lineups based on different types of ways you think the game is going to go? How does how does that usually work? Definitely, yeah. So if it was playing, and actually the 150 is the number that the sites allow you to play. When I'm mass monitoring like that, I typically cap it at 100. It's just a nicer number for me. And based on some of the math that I've run, uh, it actually gives me the highest ROI by not having those extra 50 teams as some of my teams get a little, in my opinion, too similar. Obviously, it depends on the goals you have. If the goal is just simply to take it down and not necessarily worry about each individual week's profit, of course, I would max it out every time. Uh, but anyway, with that being said, but if I'm playing 100 lineups, I will typically divide it up into four or five uh, different game scripts and optimize for all of those. So one of the things I like to talk about on, you know, like, a cash game on a full slate, you're optimizing to score the most points. Here, we're optimizing to score the most points in a given game script. Uh, and that, I think that's a really, really, really key difference. Uh, so earlier at the top of the show, you mentioned liking, I've already forgot the team, but you like one team all in week one, you can't play six players from the same team, but you can definitely play five. Uh, and that's something that ends up happening very frequently uh, in some of these builds as Chief here tries to attack me on camera. <laughs> hey, are you done, buddy? Yeah, so I, I would typically have four to five different game scripts, uh, and then I'll be optimizing groups of 10 to 30 lineups, depending on which one. So I won't treat them all equal. Uh, you know, in a game that's supposed to be a seven-point spread, that's going to be the one that's going to have, you know, that that's where a lot of those is going to be focused. But there will definitely, like, what does it look like when the six-and-a-half-point underdog, when they win by a touchdown, what does that look like, Right. And we're basically optimizing and building for that. What does it look like when the six and a half point favorite wins by two touchdowns, by wins by 15 to 18 points, right? And then we build from there. So I look at how likely each outcome is and then assign an appropriate lineups to each of those outcomes. But typically it's four to five outcomes and there's really only two to three like drastically different outcomes. And then the other ones are close enough to each other. It's just going to be one player where it's going to be like more running backs in one, more wide receivers in the other uh, based on how those play out. 
It was only a matter of time until we had a chief appearance here on the podcast. That is a big dog, man. I did not realize how big Chief was, but that is a big dog. And I'm, I'm used to it already because on Fantasy Baseball today, Chris Towers, his cats come in and start attacking him, walking across his keyboard and stuff while he's trying. I'm just like, man, this is between this uh, this podcast and that, It's uh, I'm used to it by now. But uh, so basically you have four, four or five different game flows that you're going with and you said you're making 100 lineups. So that's like... 20 lineups per game flow, right? That you're kind of projecting here. Uh, if you're just playing a single entry, you're just finding the one that you think is the most likely. Is that, are you just, are you focusing more on what Vegas is projecting if you're just playing like a single entry in uh, in Showdown? For the most part, I think that when you play one single entry on a Showdown slate, I think you need to be very clear about what your goal is. Is your goal to cash the tournament, make a little bit of money? Or is your goal, are you okay with attempting to have a top 0.1% finish and being okay with you know having that outcome where you essentially return zero? So you need to ask yourself that question first because how you build that one single lineup is going to differ drastically. It's going to be totally different, right? If you're coming in here, because the reason I like showdown slates, and I will tell you too, I kind of mentioned it there, when I play 100, I'll have the most likely outcome, which is going to be the outcome that everyone is building for. I'm still going to have 30-ish lineups built that way. And that's going to be somewhat intentional because it's you know, relatively easy to cash that because there's a large portion of the field that is building for one-off outcomes that are building for uncommon outcomes that makes it relatively easy to cash, to min cash. You're not going to be making a lot of money here, but you're going to min cash it. And I like, that's how I preserve some of my profitability with 100 lineups. 30 of them are essentially designed to be there when things that are supposed to happen happen and still take advantage of it in cash because those kind of lineups often cash even when it's a similar game flow, but not exactly as we think. Uh, but to, to answer some of your questions there, yeah, it's it's never like 20-20-20 across the board. It'll be, you know, there might only be five lineups for one you know, that outcome where the underdog that's, you know, a seven to 10 point underdog wins by two touchdowns. Yeah. Incredibly unlikely outcome just one that I want to have enough to where I'm still overweight to what the field is building for that scenario, but it's not going to be a benefit to really build 20 of those lineups. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense. And, and just working back correlation again into this, I know that like if you're making one single lineup, right, you're sticking with just that one outcome. What say you think that the Cowboys are going to win in week one and they somehow are going to win handily. See, you're, you're not going to want, Bucks running backs or even the Bucks defense in your lineup because that doesn't make sense, right? If the Cowboys win by seven to ten points, whatever it might be, you probably want Zeke, you probably want some of the Cowboys pass catchers, probably Tom Brady because they're playing from behind. But it wouldn't make sense from a game flow perspective to have the back the Bucks defense or maybe even one or two of their running backs. Correct. I mean, while outliers exist and a running back could get free, you know, in that game script and in and run one to the house. Yeah, you're right. I mean, again, when when you're talking about games game scripts and narratives, you're just, you're literally envisioning how the game is going to go. So yeah, if you actually think the Cowboys are going to win, or if you think they're going to be super competitive, if you think they're going to play time of possession, then, you know, you, you, you grab Zeke. And then maybe because you think it's going to be a time of possession game in favor of Dallas, which I don't expect that to be the case, by the way, I'm just saying that as an example, then, you know, you can ride Zeke and then just ride the narrative that Tampa Bay is not going to have the ball very often. They could still win the game, but they're not going to have the ball as much as you think, you know, what does that mean for the Tampa Bay offense, especially if it's a close game? So again, you, you build your narrative and then you build your team around the narrative. Mike, speak to me about the importance of news when it comes to showdown, right? Obviously, we play co- we pay close attention to news for all slates, but 
I think it's a little bit more important, especially for one game, because if you know an RB1 for a team is a little bit banged up or a wide receiver one is a little bit banged up, then you might look to that RB2 or maybe even a wide receiver three. And again, every single play in this format matters. I, I cannot stress that enough. So what what is the importance level of the news like that? And what are some of the best ways to be contrarian that you have noticed? Maybe like a wide receiver four or a tight end two. Any trends that you've noticed in that regard? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that the, the news is hugely important, obviously. So if you're getting any sort of wide receiver four or five or tight end two, three, running back three, four, that's going to be someone who's minimum price. So on, on DraftKings also, it's very different than FanDuel in terms of the pricing. So on DraftKings, the minimum salary for a player is $200, uh, which is essentially a free square. So you need to look for those situations where that player is going to be getting snaps. You may only be projecting them for one target potentially, but that is enough in this format if you get them on the field that it really opens things up and it drastically changes how you're going to be getting certain players in there, especially if you're playing cash games or especially if your goal is to simply, you know, mend cash and, and to come in and make some money. There will be many, many slates where I will have a lineup with a zero in it. I will essentially, when you're playing that $200 player, you're almost intentionally taking the zero. And you're doing that because the projection and the combined projection of getting both quarterbacks, both running back ones in those lineups is definitely going to outweigh what it would look like by playing the $3,400 player that you might project for two targets, something like that. So it's very, very important. Another thing you'll need to look at is oftentimes those wide receiver four and five, some of them can potentially be involved in special teams and some of the return games where you can essentially double dip on potential scoring plays with the if you're playing the defenses on these. Um, th there's a lot that goes into it, but you definitely have to follow the news. You definitely have to wait for that inactives report because if all of a sudden someone is out and that $200 player becomes relevant, you know, if they're seeing literally, if they're seeing 10 to 12 snaps, that's enough that they're going to be relevant to the way that you build your lineups. And, and Frank, this is a less extreme example because I, I was just scrolling on, on DraftKings, the showdown for for Tampa Bay and, and Dallas. And there's a bevy of $200 options that, that, you know, Mike may consider when he's actually making his lineup. But if you just go up a little bit, I mean, in terms of, you know, grabbing the right player and following the right news. I mean, you have Cameron Brait at 2600 OJ Howard at 2200 And of course, Gronkowski is is going to be more expensive than those two. And you have Gio Bernard at 2000, Scotty Miller at 1600. You know, depending on how the news breaks, I mean, maybe, maybe Gronk doesn't get a full complement of snaps for, for whatever reason. Maybe OJ Howard, who hasn't really been super impressive yet coming off an injury, maybe we get news right before the game that he's in line to see the most snaps versus the other two. All of a sudden, you know, you've grabbed a guy that's 2200 that makes a lot of the other, you know, roster build fit. Now, again, that's not the free square $200 guy necessarily, but it, it just kind of goes to show that even when you get to that 2000, $3,000 range, especially for week one, when, you know, nobody really knows what's going on. You really have to be keyed in on the news because if you grab the right two 2200 or 1600 guys, maybe you get one or two of them all of a sudden, boom, you got Tom Brady and, and Dak Prescott or whatever you want, Tom Brady and Ezekiel Elliott. And, and you can pair that with, you know, whatever Mike Evans, whatever you want to do. So it, you, the news, it, it really is. And by the way, Blake Jarwin and Dalton Schultz on the other side of the ball, the other, the other two tight ends for Dallas, like that, that is a true competition. I think Blake Jarwin is way more talented than Dalton Schultz, but he's also coming off a major injury. So, you know, as the news goes, as the preseason goes, those sort of battles become really important for showdown. Another way that you could save money outside of just these $200 players 
can be using the defense and the kickers, which we mentioned earlier. And for example, the Bucks defense, who we, we know is very good, they're $4,800 on the slate in week one against the Cowboys. That is the 20th ranked player, I guess you could say, in salary on this slate. And then Ryan Suckup is $4,000. That's the 23rd ranked player in terms of salary. So Mike, uh, how often are you actually using defenses and kickers? Because this seems so foreign because on the main slate, again, we're not really worrying about definitely not kickers because they're not even there. And then defenses, like more often than not, we're usually spending down. So how often do you use those two in showdown? Yeah, this one's a really, really fun question because the answer is frequently. Uh, it's way more frequently for kicker, kicker. You muted yourself, Mike. Just letting you know there. Mike, I, bet, I bet that was that was probably Chief. It was probably Chief. Oh, man, Mike's trying to figure it out right now. But uh, see, like you could talk a little bit more about how uh, defenses and kickers, like it's it's like not common. Obviously, people are are not going to gravitate towards wanting to use those positions, but it's an easy way to save money on showdown. Yeah. It, it is, and it's it's such a it's such a astute comment, and obviously Mike's really successful at Showdown, and it's one of those things where the the average player, or I should say the average Showdown player, because I'm not a big Showdown player, admittedly. So you know, even me coming into it would be like I would see the kickers, and I would understand the idea that well, okay, their median scores, just like Mike said, would be you know relatively high. But I still probably would be thinking, well, the upside isn't there, and I'm going for upside, you know, things of that nature. So I, it's such a really, it's such a really quality observation because I think people just naturally are going to go to the player that they think, hey, maybe that player can catch a couple touchdowns. I don't really see that happening with, you know, a defense or or a kicker living, you know, getting 12, 13, 14 points. But you know, especially in cash, it may, and we'll get Mike's opinion on that, but it may not really matter. That, In other words, in cash, you're not necessarily going for the upside there. You're going for just the built-in points. And I think if you look long-term over what kickers and defense, well, kickers in particular, what kickers have done, um, they're going to get that median score that you're looking for more often than not, especially if it's a team that, you know, can't really punch it in. You know, it's interesting. I'd like to hear Mike's perspective on this Dallas-Tampa Bay game because, both of these offenses can churn. Does that potentially mean you stray away from the kicker? Probably not, but I'd be curious as to what Mike's opinion is on that. All right, Mike. So I'm not sure how much of all of that you heard, but defenses and kickers, what is the overarching theme here? So can you hear me? Yes, yep. we got you. Perfect. We got it back. All right. Chief has caused the first trouble of the, uh, of the podcast, but we're back. Okay. So in a game like that, where you think the game is potentially shooting out, I actually, that's a spot where we, like to play the kickers on a more contrarian basis. So the obvious, the thought process with the kickers is for the average person is going to be, okay, teams move the ball, struggle to punch it in the end zone. They settle for field goals. I like that thought process. However, they end up becoming over-owned in those situations where they are not owned enough is some of those games like that, where there's obvious pass catchers, right? Obvious value plays. The kickers become undervalued in these spots because we're all attacking the $3,000 wide receiver that we think is getting all of the action. When in the reality, the drive still stalls. We kick the 50-yard field goals. By the way, they score four touchdowns. You've got four points on the extra points there. While if all the touchdowns are concentrated to wide receiver one or two, who we already have if we're attacking that team, all of a sudden now the three the thirty five hundred dollar kicker becomes a much better value than the four thousand dollar wide receiver who has three catches for thirty eight yards right typically so it's it just depends on the build it's going to depend on for me personally 
and a lot of you guys will end up following me on Sportsline and some of you know those spots to like really get where I'm at on each individual game. But the answer is truly going to come down to the projected ownership that I have. I'll basically be looking at what that number comes in, what it looks like. So sometimes the defenses will eat into those numbers. I'm a big, big fan of fading defenses and showdown sites. The, the short answer here is uh, it just depends on the projected ownership, but I will say I play kickers and I will play double kicker. Um, I, I think it's a really, really fun way to, well, I will redefine fun, but it's a really interesting <laughs> way to fade some of the cheaper value plays that we know are going to gain a lot of ownership from the field. Double kickers, fun. You heard it here first. Fantasy football today, <laughs> DFS. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, choosing a captain. How do you go about that? We'll talk about it here. Fantasy football today, DFS. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. All right, so how do we go about choosing a captain in this format? Again, on DraftKings and on fan, there's a captain on DraftKings. There's a MVP on FanDuel. Both of those players earn one and a half times their fantasy points, while the rest of the players in your lineup do not earn that boost. It's just normal. Five catches for 50 yards, you're getting your 10 points. If you do that as the captain, you're going to get 15 fantasy points. On DraftKings, however, your captain is also 1.5 times their salary. So Tom Brady in week one is $11,200 in the showdown slate, but he's 16000 $800 when being used as the captain, and this obviously creates some hurdles. So uh, first off, Mike, who are the most popular captains? I'm guessing it's usually like quarterback or RB1. Yeah, the quarterback's definitely going to be the most popular captain. Uh, it, after that, it's going to be really close between wide receiver number one or running back number one for the team that is favored, I should say. So it's basically going to start with QB that's favored in the game, going to be number one. After that, it's going to be either running back or wide receiver, likely going to be dependent upon you know, who the individual players are for one, and then two, how what's the game script look like? Are we talking two-point favorite? Are we talking seven to eight-point favorite? That's going to determine whether it's going to be wide receiver one or running back number one. But then right behind that, it's going to be the underdog running back, underdog wide receiver number one uh, before any of the number two wide receivers come in. It makes a lot of sense. It's going to be the ones that the players that attract the most volume have the most usage. Those are going to be the top plays. I think the one that's underutilized is going to be the opposing quarterback to the favored team. So the underdog quarterback it's not going to be in the top five to six, but it probably should be, especially if you're playing cash games, especially if you're looking for um, you know, one of those minimum caches because you can still play the other quarterback and get exposure to it. But I think the thing that there's a huge misconception that, so in this game, for example, say we, you know, Tampa Bay favored, we think Tom Brady is the optimal choice there. If Tom Brady has that kind of game where you think he would have been warranted to be in that captain spot, it's going to create so many more opportunities for someone on the other side, especially the quarterback, Dak Prescott. He's going to have the ball in his hands, going to be throwing the ball, going to be pressing to make more plays. We don't, you know, they don't care if he has two to three turnovers. Obviously, it impacts the uh, the fantasy points, but 
he might run not quite twice as many plays, but he right, might run more plays there and more passing plays in this game than Tom Brady will based on how the game script plays out. So I, I think that that's one of the most underrated ways, especially if you're playing a cash game, to get some differentiation from the field and then bring that that price total down just enough to be able to get that extra wide receiver in. We know that usually for GPPs, we're paying close attention to projected ownership percentage for specific players. Mike, do you care about projected captain percentage? Is that even a thing, like trying to project that beforehand? Yes, definitely. Uh, definitely trying to project that. I run the so that's the beauty of what I, I do is I run simulations for everything and I can tell exactly from my simulations the optimal. You know, again, it's up to de- debate whether it's optimal or not. It's optimal based on my projections, based on my data. I have an optimal percentage at every position or every player at the captain spot, and I can compare that to projected ownership at the captain spot. And then since I trust my models, trust what I'm doing, I'm essentially looking for big, the biggest delta that I can to try and get the most leverage on the field. So my model might say that in this game, Mike Evans should be... 18% in the captain spot. He might only be 12% projected ownership in the captain spot because there might be more projected ownership going to Prescott, more going to Brady, more going to Elliott. So in that spot, I would have a good 5% there of a leverage. So that's going to mean that he's going to be prioritized a little more at the captain spot for me. because the, And that's part of the beauty of showdown here, right? Like it's Mike Evans there. I have a little leverage in the, my projections. Doesn't mean I... I'm going to be fading Tom Brady. doesn't mean I'm going to be fading Dak Prescott. It just means I'm going to be prioritizing that edge that I have in the captain spot, and I'm still getting exposure to those players that everyone else is playing at 1.5x. They're likely going to be down in my flex spots. So it's a little different. It's not quite the same as like taking that hard stance on because I want to prioritize the leverage I have on Evans that I have to not play that other player that I'm you, you know acquiring the leverage on. And the word you use there is exactly what I was thinking. The beauty, right? The beauty of playing the showdown slate is, see, we have all these different aspects that we're thinking about, all these different factors, right? Because now we're not just thinking about ownership percentage. We're thinking about captain percentage. We're thinking about game flow, projected game flow. And if we're making multiple lineups for GBP, how, how many different possible uh, combinations of players can I fit into this specific game flow? So that's why when you're talking about showdown, this is like a very intricate format because you have all these different factors and things to consider, which maybe we're not actually considering those things as much in a normal slate. Well, first of all, it, you're so right because I love how Mike just laid everything out because I think the average consumer of Showdown will go in and, and they'll say to themselves, well, listen, I, I want Tom Brady and Dak Prescott, but if I can't do that, then I'll get Dak Prescott and you know a couple you know a couple receivers from Tampa Bay, and I'll work everything out. And and their big decision is well, what low price guy am I going to get? Which two hundred dollar guy am I going to get? Or 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 maybe not two hundred, maybe two thousand. Like, am I going to play Gio Bernard or Ronald Jones instead of Leonard Fournette? Like, that's the big decision that I think the the average player. And that's not a. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to quote the average player. I mean, I'm, even when I go into showdown slates, cause I don't have as much experience in showdown as I might with obviously your regular slates. And it's, and, it, and I think that's where people's mindset is, is let me grab some of the, a couple of the quarterbacks, one primary running back a receiver, and then just go down low and, and hopefully I pick right. Well, what Mike is saying is, yeah, that's all well and good, but you're not really maximizing the math. You're not maximizing the leverage. And I think, 
what that really tells us is that showdown is actually a lot more complicated than people think, not in a bad way, but not even complicated, but more complex than people think, because there are several ways to attack it beyond, hey, grab a couple guys at the top and just hope you're right with your bottom end guy, or your bottom end two guys or whatever. So putting it in those terms, I think, makes showdown a lot more strategic than than people think. I'm not saying people didn't think it was strategic, but I really love the commentary about Mike Evans and the leverage, even, even if it's a small amount of leverage, the leverage that you might pick up on the field just by putting him in the captain spot, maybe five or six percentage points more than you would have in the first place. Mike, how did your how does your captain differ in playing GPP versus cash? We spoke a little bit about how if you play cash, you might want both quarterbacks in there. Are you more likely to captain a quarterback in cash versus maybe using, I don't know, a kicker or defense? Would you ever captain a kicker or defense? I don't know, in GPP? Very rarely. Okay. Um, the I'll answer the second part of the question first. So the only time that I'll really captain a defense is if it's a scenario where I want to essentially fade the defenses, right? So that might sound like a really, really interesting comment. And that you can use this to other players as well, frankly, because uh, I do it all the time. And what I mean by that is I'm playing 100 lineups, right? I don't want exposure to the defenses because based on what I'm seeing in my projections, the field is going to be massively overweight on the defenses. The field's going to own you know, 40% total ownership or 30% total ownership on the two defenses. My data says that that number should be closer to eight to 10%. That's something I want absolutely no part of. Uh, given that gap is so big, I want to fade it completely. And when I'm right, I want to really be right. I want to make all the money, right? However, in those situations, it leaves, you know, if we have defensive touchdowns, if they play really well, it really, really, really hurts my entire portfolio, right? So there will be one to two lineups where I will play one or both of those defenses in the captain spot and then completely fade them throughout. And my rationale there and my thought process there is if the defenses score enough points to its where it's going to actually hurt my lineups and really hurt my overall portfolio, they're going to have to score so many points that they're probably going to be pretty optimal in the captain spot, right? At the 1.5 X. If not, they're probably not scoring enough points to really harm me by being played in the flex spot. So that's what I'll do. I'll play them in the captain spot, build for what that potentially looks like and move on with my day. So I'll do the same thing. If like we have really scenarios where like, I, I get this question all the time, frankly, because I share all of my exposures on Sportsline for every showdown slate, right? So I'll get all question all the time. There'll be someone like in this game, Amari Cooper, right? And I'll get the question like, Mike, you have Amari Cooper at captain in 8% of your lineups, but you don't have them really at all in the flex. Why is that? And the answer to that question is the range of outcomes that he has. There are scenarios about 8% of the time where he should be that captain spot. However, at a certain price point, he does not become an optimal play in the flex because it is so prohibitive to getting other captains, other people in the lineups. So I'll take those stances there while I might be overweight on the player at the captain spot, underweight to the field on him at the flex spot. It's basically now, a, as far as it's basically a hedge, uh, right? You're hedging. You're, you're hedging. Yeah, you're hedging. And then you're also just understanding what the, those range of outcomes look like. So for him, uh, I guess the example would maybe it's probably going to be him in the, in this first game, but it's often a wide receiver like that. That is a true, like alpha number one receiver, but not necessarily the true number one receiver in the game. 
And what happens there is his price point is elevated to the point where it's going to be very similar to the the other side. And it's going to be, like I said, very difficult to, to get there. And you're going to have to make a decision. For me, the computer makes the decision for me on that. Um, now, to your original question, though, as far as cash games, I'm more likely to play a quarterback in cash games at the, at the captain spot. But it all is going to come down to the combination of players. Is there an obvious mispriced player? So if there's a wide receiver one or someone all wide receiver one, that's going to be priced like so for this first game, if, if you look at uh, DraftKings there, pretend that it's Godwin, right? Say for some reason, Mike Evans is out. Godwin at 12-9 now becomes the optimal captain because um, he's not competing as much with Mike Evans in there. It's just he becomes a much better play, even in that cash game format. But with where the distribution is normally, it's probably still going to be one of the quarterbacks. So it is slate specific, but generally speaking, in a cash game, you're going to have both quarterbacks in the lineup and likely one of them at the captain spot. Now, if we talk FanDuel specific, FanDuel is also just a little bit different because of the the roster construction, the pricing, the way it works there. Um, I will almost always have at least one of the quarterbacks, sometimes still two of them. Um, On FanDuel, you can get away with Real, real basic uh, roster construction there. Quarterback one, quarterback two, RB one, RB two, which would be for the other team. And you're essentially getting exposure to all scoring plays with those four players, right? Uh, Because you get exposure to all the receiving touchdowns through the quarterback. You get exposure to hopefully the running, the rushing touchdowns through the running backs. Um, That's going to be a very simple, very generic cash game strategy. But you'd be surprised how often it works and cashes on a, on a site like DraftKings. So on DraftKings, you could take it even a step further and play the kicker from both teams. Uh, and in that theory, as long as it's the number one running backs that's scoring, you're going to have some sort of exposure to essentially every offensive scoring play. Yeah, I can't wait until Gio Bernard scores like three touchdowns in week one and, and we all had exposure yep. to RB1 for one team, RB1 for the other team. And, and we're, we're watching as, uh, as Gio Bernard gets it done there. I guess let's just put a whole a bow on this conversation for showdown, and then we'll wrap up here with a few other week one takeaways. But Mike, anything else that you'd like to add? Maybe anything that we haven't hit here, the the do's, the don'ts, things that you've noticed, maybe some trends the past couple of years that have allowed you to be so profitable in showdown. Yeah, I would say uh, follow on Sportsline if you can. Obviously, he's gonna. I'll, I'll share my exact exposures with you there. But uh, follow the news. Make sure that you understand who's going to be playing in the games. And then build for specific scenarios, build for specific game scripts. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk in the industry, frankly, even from some of us too, about using optimizers. I still use them significantly for this. There's no way I could manage it without it. Uh, but I'm manually setting my exposures in there. The last thing that I think you should be doing for a showdown slate is just optimizing a set of projections. So you find a set of projections. It's going to optimize. You're going to have a median projection for everyone, right? So it's going to be like Mike Evans, 17 points, uh, Chris Godwin, 16.4 points, things like that. Trying to optimize a projection set like that is going to set you up for failure pretty significantly here because in general, like you, you look down the board, uh, it's going to be almost impossible for Mike Evans to score 17, Godwin 16, the next guy 12.4. Like it's, it, that's not the way the game is going to play out. But that's the way most people are optimizing their lineups, uh, especially in this format, especially people playing one lineup, especially people playing cash games. Um, So I I think that the best advice I could give you there is to follow along, follow the news, build for certain 
game scripts and do not be afraid to leave salary on the table as there will definitely be games with players out. There will be cheap running backs. Don't think that because that happens that you have to go in there and play, uh, you know, and fill that salary cap out because you definitely do not. Yeah, and that's what's very unique also about Showdown is that you can leave salary on the table. And I know that doing some analysis, some early analysis on like the Millie Maker, more often than not, you want to spend as close to as much money as you have in the Millie Maker as possible. But Showdown, it's again, it's it's a unique format. So you can leave some money on the table there. Yes, Mike? Really? I have one more question, comment that I want to leave because this Let's is an it. important piece for the entire season. We'll talk about it many times. But one way that you can gain a huge edge on the field, especially if you're someone like me playing a lot of lineups, even, even if you're playing five lineups, 20 lineups, right? If you're using an optimizer in any way, there are many times where I will go in and change my salary cap. So the maximum salary cap right now is $50,000. We know the average fantasy player, especially in this one game format, is going to try to use as much as that as they possibly can, right? So one way that you, if you go look, like we'll, we'll play with the data throughout the season, I'll download it and we'll show you. You can go look and download the files once it starts. You will see a large percentage of the field that uses all 50,000. The next most used combination will be 49.9 and then 49.8. So if you want to get yourself massive differentiation from day one, if you're using an optimizer, set your maximum salary from 50,000, move it down to 49,700 to make it leave at least $300 on the table. And you automatically reduce the probability that your lineup is going to be duped by a significant number. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point there. And one that you can take into week one when you're playing on Showdown Slate. Let's wrap up here with some other week one takeaways. We spoke about a lot earlier on, but uh, Sia, you're still here. I want to, we got to get you back in here. But uh, we spoke about Tampa Bay, the Jets backfields and, and how they look like they might be using a committee approach. But there was a few others that you sent my way, including Houston, they had Phil Lindsay start in week one of the preseason. David Johnson only had one carry. That might have been by design, but uh, Jacksonville is another one that looks like they might be using three different running backs. If it's James Robinson, Travis Etienne, who they drafted in the first round. And then uh, they also brought in Carlos Hyde, who has some familiarity there with Urban Meyer. So Tampa Bay, Jets, Houston, Jacksonville running backs, and maybe even the Dolphins now. There was a report on Monday that Brian Flores, their head coach, Plans to use three running backs. That really wasn't the case at all last season. So are we just fading all of these backfields at this point? Yeah, pretty much. And by the way, I could listen to Mike talk about showdown for at least another 45 minutes. Exactly. I mean, it, honestly, like I, I just can tell you as somebody who, who's played a lot of DFS, I mean, obviously that, that's why we're on this show, but that showdown advice is is really, really important. And it's also a really nice plug for Sportsline too, because it, the, the amount of information that Mike is is pulling and putting onto Sportsline, I think is really kind of significant in terms of getting the the average DraftKings player sort of an edge on 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 really everything when it comes to showdown or anything else. But to answer your question, Frank, yeah. So, you know, I mentioned at the front of the show that the Bucks backfield, the, the Jets backfield are backfield to avoid. Well, I mean, we can go ahead and at least for now add the Jags and the uh, Houston Texans to that list. As far as the Dolphins, it's interesting because the, what's interesting to me is the extent by which people are surprised that Miles Gaskin, you know, might not have the same amount of workload as he did last year. And I only say that because Gaskin really didn't do anything. I mean, he got a lot of red zone touches. He got a lot of work, obviously, but he didn't do anything super impressive. Let's not forget, I think he was number 
234 overall in the 2019 draft, I believe, a seventh round pick. I mean, mind you, Malcolm Brown and let's see, Salvin Ahmed and who do they have? Patrick Laird. Those are all undrafted free agents. So, but my point is, is that there's not a skill set for any of these running backs that is that is great. And their average yards per carry last year was somewhere between 4.1 and 4.3, depending on which play you're talking about. So I think that really, truly is a committee. I, I know people were drafting Gaskin in, in year-long leagues, you know, relatively early, but, you know, I, I just never got there. I think Malcolm Brown is a serviceable running back. I think Ahmed proved he's a somewhat, you know, a decent running back. So yeah, there's a lot of backfields to avoid, at least for now. But at the same time, if we get the requisite information for any of these five backfields that we're talking about prior to week one or week two or week three for DFS, all of a sudden you have DFS gold. If you have the right information that all of a sudden the coaching staff, maybe it's not super public or people aren't really like believing it or whatever, whatever the case may be. But if you get information that, hey, it's the Philip Lindsay show in Houston and David Johnson's still, he's got a lingering injury that the coaching staff doesn't want to talk about and, and nobody really trusts Mark Ingram for a three down roll. Well, then all of a sudden, that whatever his price is week two or week three, you, you put him into your lineup and all of a sudden you, you've got a nice little edge there. So while I say, hey, we got to stay away from these backfields at the same time, we have to monitor them very closely because there will be gold at the end of some of these rainbows for sure. Yeah. And look, as frustrating as it is for committees in the NFL running back by committee. It makes a lot of sense. Just like from a pure NFL perspective, I can't knock a coach or an offensive coordinator for wanting to run his offense that way because you can have different players with different skill sets and they obviously fill different roles on the team. So uh, while we want workhorse running backs for fantasy, I totally understand why some teams do go down this route. Some other news and just some quick takeaways from the weekend. Dak Prescott's latest MRI on his shoulder showed progress. Mike, at what point do we start to worry about Dak Prescott? Is it all right, we're two or three weeks into training camp, into the preseason. We haven't seen Dak Prescott really do anything. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a concern. Uh, I mean, anytime, you know, I, he's got an injury like this, and it's an injury that, you know, really impacts pretty much everything he does, right? Uh, shoulder injury is not something I want as a quarterback. Uh, definitely not something I want my quarterback having. Who knows how long it's going to take him to get up to speed and what does the strength really look like in that shoulder? We don't know right now, right? So for me, I'm pretty concerned, especially when you know, you've got Amari Cooper, you got CeeDee Lamb, you've got these receivers there that you know they, they obviously want to throw the football, right? Uh, and throw it often. So I definitely think it's time for some concern here. And It'll be very interesting to see what that week one line movement looks like to see where that game kind of moves as far as a, a sports betting perspective and what that line is. Uh, I, I think that we could see some line movement on that game in the next seven to 10 days for sure. Yeah, and there are so many fantasy-relevant players just tied to Dak Prescott. You mentioned Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb, even Michael Gallup, who's once again getting a lot of hype in the best ball community. And then Ezekiel Elliott, I mean, if we just look at last year, his splits with Dak Prescott versus without, he was head and shoulders better when, when Dak Prescott was his quarterback, which obviously makes a ton of sense there. Uh, some other notes here, all from Sia, by the way, which I appreciate, man. Like, the fact that I've done this, like, Fantasy baseball side, I'm taking all like the news and notes and stuff. And the fact that like you just threw this on here, I, I do I do appreciate that, man. Uh, but a few things to pay attention to. Uh, Xavier Jones, you you noted, is Daryl Henderson's backup, which that's how he was working in this game. And they've been talking him up, so that makes sense. McCole Hardman played 0% of the snaps with two wide receiver sets. He did play 100% with three wide receiver sets. So... Uh, I don't know offhand like how often the Kansas City Chiefs run three wide receiver sets, but it's pretty often. Yeah, 
So it's not that's not like really super breaking news. It just kind of speaks to the fact that what, what I was referencing last week, which is there's other receivers, even though Hardman is technically going to be the wide receiver, too. There's other receivers like Byron Pringle, Demarcus Robinson, who have proven that when they're on the field, they're adequate receivers. Tyrell Williams has some sneaky DFS value for the Detroit Lions. I know that he was targeted quite a bit while Jared Goff was in the game. Another name that I like there is Amonra St. Brown, who caught each of his two two targets from Jared Goff, and both of those came in the slot. And I've seen some people compare St. Brown to a new version of Cooper Cup. Obviously, Cooper Cup played in the slot quite a bit, so that could make some sense there for Jared Goff. Uh, last but not least, we have Miles Sanders. Feels like he is the clear-cut bell cow for the Eagles. And then it might be time to lean on Sterling Shepard. Well, listen, you know, nobody talks about Sterling Shepard. It's like he doesn't exist. I happen to think he's a good receiver. And, you know, you got Kenny Galladay that's already hurt. And I think that's going to linger to some degree into the regular season. Kadarius Toney is is hurt now. It's probably not serious. But again, these soft tissue injuries tend to linger. And and it just means limited practice time. Sterling Shepard is a veteran. I think he's highly underrated. I think the Giants are generally going to be bad and there's not a lot of pass catchers once you get beyond Kenny Galladay. So I think it really is Golden Tate's not on that team anymore. Evan Ingram more often than not drops passes rather than catching them. So I think Shepard is just kind of a sneaky DFS play. So that's that's where I went there. And as far as Miles Sanders, that was kind of more my narrative in the sense that like I just don't think Kenny Gainwell is, is the guy that people think he is at least not yet and I don't think Jordan Howard or Boston Scott are a threat so with Miles Sanders who had a nice yards per carry last year with a bad offensive line now has has his offensive line back that could mean a a really good season for Miles Sanders man you know you want to talk about burying the lead I don't know how I waited this long to mention but the biggest winner of the weekend was clearly Tim Tebow I mean did you see this guy's blocking it's pretty good it's pretty awesome Uh, it was he is a (laughs) he did get some airtime that counts as a win. Oh, gosh, man. This Tim Tebow thing, like, even when he was on the Jets or trying to do the baseball thing, just come on, man. It's, it's, so, time, it's time to go. It's time to so go, Tim Tebow. Can, can I just push back just for a second, though? And you're right. He's not a tactician when it comes to blocking. Uh, that, that was evidenced uh, a couple days ago. It was, it was not a good look. However, is it, is it Tim Tebow's fault that he has got a roster position on this team for right now, or is it Urban Meyer's fault. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Again, this is not content for this show necessarily, but I, I just wonder, are we blaming the wrong person? Anybody in Tim Tebow's position, or I shouldn't say Tim Tebow because he's a he's a uniquely positioned athlete, commentator, what have celebrity, but anybody who has a dream of playing football. If a coach calls him and says, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you a one year contract or I'm going to let you practice or, or whatever, have a tryout. I think 99.9% of the population would say yes to that invitation, and and they wouldn't do the following. Well, I am a little worried about a potential roster spot for a tight end who I don't know who might make the team if I don't join you guys. So I think we're being a little unfair to the to the idea that like Tim Tebow, whether you think it's a dream of his or not, I, I think it kind of is, and he's pursuing it. So until he gets cut, it's not on him. Now you're right about that, but it was it. Urban Meyer who called him up and was like, hey, I got a spot for you. Or was it Tebow like begging him like, hey, man, let me get on the team. I, I don't know how that conversation works, but it's I mean, does, does it matter, though, because yeah. Tim Tebow is not calling the shot regardless. It's clearly yeah. going to be Urban Meyer and the GM and management, the president. You know, who knows? All right. Well, we just spent about two minutes worth of uh, Tim Tebow that probably no one else wanted to ever hear in their lives. But 
whatever. We did it anyway. We're going to wrap there. For Mike and Sia, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening and watching Fantasy Football Today. DFS will be back again on Thursday with DFS terminology, players we love, and preseason week two plays. See you then. 